So here's what I want to do to do uh, today to start. I'm going to read you a, a kid's story, right? So many of you are adults, you've got bills to pay, you've got mouths to feed, mortgages to take care of. So all of us are tempted with that thought every now and then of wishing we were just a kid, right? Where someone else would take care of us and put us down and, and do something nice like read a story. So for about five minutes, you get to regress and, and be a kid. You can just sit comfortably in your seat. Feel free to sit Indian style, grab a blanket, be comfortable, and, and hear this story. It's the story of Jonah and the big fish from the Beginner's Bible, a book given to Hannah Joy. All right, here we go. One day, Jonah, God told Jonah, go to the big city of Nineveh, tell them to stop doing bad things. But Jonah ran away. He did not want to go. So if we were in grade school, I'd show you all the picture. See the big signpost to Nineveh? Jonah's running the opposite direction. Good. He got on a boat and sailed across the sea. There's Jonah with his Rastafarian beard, and he's getting on the ship to go across the sea. God sent a big storm to stop Jonah. The sailors were afraid they thought the boat was going to sink. Not the manliest of sailors. They're hugging one another, but it's a kid's book, so it's okay. Jonah told them, God sent this storm. If you throw me into the water, the storm will go away. So the sailors threw Jonah into the raging sea. And instantly the sea became calm. And, and now if you're following along in the story, you know we're at the end of chapter 1. Jonah's been thrown into the sea. Now here's chapter 2. Just then Jonah saw a big fish coming, gulp, and the fish swallowed Jonah. Right? Now we're in chapter 2. For three days and nights Jonah was inside the fish. He prayed to God, please forgive me. God listened to Jonah's prayer and God forgave Jonah. So there's Jonah inside the belly of the fish, plenty of room, and he's praying there. God told the fish to spit Jonah onto the dry land. So now we're at the end of chapter 2. And here's how the story ends. God told Jonah a second time, go and tell the people of Nineveh to stop doing bad things. This time Jonah did. The end. So if you know the story, what's the, the problem? Right, so if, if this was grade school, I would say boys and girls, what is the point of the story? And one of the kids, one of the nerds usually would go, pick me, pick me. Right, we'll call him Sabu, and Sabu would say, the point of the story is we are to obey God and not run from him. And so we would all go, yeah, that's the point. Even if we run one time, we're to obey God just like Jonah did. So go obey God like Jonah did. All right, here's the problem with the story. When we open the scriptures, page 774 and 775 of Jonah, this is how the story takes a left turn. Because chapter 3 ends with, and Jonah goes to Nineveh, just like God said. But then you get this awful, nasty chapter called chapter 4. And here's how chapter 4 goes, verses 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take from me my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well 
to be angry. One of the interesting things that, that I found was Shaina and I went to a Christian bookstore, and so we were starting Jonah, so we started thumbing su- through some of these kids' books to just see if we could find a good one. And over and over again, the thing that we kept finding was story after story would sort of end at chapter 3. And Jonah went to Nineveh, and the people repented. And, and one of the things that we came to a conclusion was we don't really know what to do with chapter 4, Right? The conclusion we came to was Christians don't really know what to make of, of chapter 4. Right? If you were here last week, you heard Sibby introduce for us chapter 4. And he walked us through what's happened in the story. So in chapter 1, you've got this call for Jonah to go to Nineveh. He runs a thousand miles opposite direction. Headed on a ship, he's thrown overboard. Chapter 2, he's inside the belly of the fish and he prays this extravagant prayer of thanksgiving thanking God for delivering him and saving him. Chapter 3, he now goes to Nineveh, preaches a lousy five-word sermon. The entire city repents. And then you've got this nasty U-turn in chapter 4. And you sort of left scratching your head and going, what are we supposed to do with this? As Sibi and I were prepping this series and getting ready to preach, we really struggled through chapters 2 and 4 because we didn't know what to do with chapter 2, right? Is Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 heartfelt and sincere? And, And is he in the belly of the fish? And does he come out a changed man? And if he does, then what do you do with chapter 4? How do you make sense of chapter 4? Because if the story ends like it does here, Everything works out nice and neat. Jonah's heart is changed. He goes to the city. They preach. End of the story, nice and neat. The only problem is, life is rarely nice and neat. Children's books are nice and neat. Life is messy. And that's because people are messy. And we don't like messy, so we don't really know what to do with Jonah 4. Right? We don't know what to do with the hypocrisy and contradictions and complexity that you see in Jonah. I mean, just take some of the contradictions that you see in Jonah. Because they're obvious to everyone, it would seem, except Jonah. Think of it. Jonah knows in his head that God has made land and sea. He says that, chapter 1. And yet, why then is he trying to run from God on the sea? Jonah knows in his head that God is king of the universe, ruler over all people. Everything and everyone belongs to God. Then why does Jonah act like God is the property of Israel and and he's like a local mayor whose jurisdiction does not extend to Nineveh, that they too should be his people and he be their God? You keep butting up against these contradictions and you're sort of left wondering, what do you do with a guy like Jonah? But then... If you look a little bit more closely, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know those contradictions very well because we see them in ourselves. Maybe you know what it's like to believe something here and yet find the wrestling that happens in your soul because your life doesn't seem to match what you know here. Right? You know, for example, if you're a believer, you know that everything you have comes from God. God has given you everything. All that you own is God's. Then why does your life struggle with generosity to give away things? Because you live as though you belong. They own, you own them. They belong to you. Or, or you struggle with worry because it, it's not God who provides. You've got to make it for yourself. Or, or if you're a believer up here, you know that God 
is the bread from heaven. Jesus is the living water. He satisfies, as the psalmist says, our souls with marrow and fat as though we're drinking good wine when we're with the Lord. If we know that here, why does my life keep running to the toilet bowls of sin and lapping that stuff up, hoping that it'll satisfy, quench, give me pleasure? I think if we're honest, we know the contradictions really well. We know what it's like to to believe one thing, to even pray a sincere prayer, and then yet find that life doesn't match. Or what do you do with the mess of Jonah's ups and downs, his, his sort of roller coaster? I'm telling you, if Jonah was in the 21st century, by the end of chapter 4, somebody would put him on meds. He'd be sitting on Dr. Phil's couch just sort of sharing his story because this guy's left and rights, his swings are ridiculous. Chapter 1, he runs from God. Chapter 2, he's crying out to God. Chapter 2, he loves God for his salvation. Chapter 4, he's cursing God for his salvation. Chapter 2, God is his friend. Chapter 4, God is his foe. Chapter 4 itself, in some of the verses we'll look next week and onwards, you see the swings. In the first six verses, Jonah is so angry, angry enough to die, exceedingly angry. You keep reading in the story and you find that God causes this vine to spring up overnight and and Jonah's sort of perched up on a hill looking at the city, waiting to see if fire is going to fall down and this vine gives him shade. And then the verses read, and he was exceedingly glad. So the same intensity, same words used to describe his anger enough to die in the first six verses, now used in verse six to say, and he was exceedingly glad. Intensity matching gladness. The very next verse, the plant dies and Jonah says, I'm angry enough to die. And it's like you want to go, Jonah, I mean, take a pill of some kind. What is with? the lefts and rights, the ups and downs, the swings. But again, I think if we're honest, and if we bring this a little closer to home, I think you get that too. Maybe you get what it's like to feel like you're ready to sing God's praises because He's good one moment, and ready to curse Him and die because He seems wicked the next. Maybe you get exactly what Jonah is like. Jonah is a contradictory, complex, complicated guy. He's a mess, and we don't know what to do with him. In fact, if you study these four chapters seriously, one of the questions you're going to at least ask once is, is Jonah even a believer? Does he even get it? Because if he prays a prayer like chapter 2 and it's sincere, then how do you explain chapter 4? Or is he just a religious guy who knows the Psalms, has pieced it together and prays this prayer that he doesn't mean and he doesn't even get it? But, but maybe Jonah's a good picture of what real life looks like. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know my Christian experience to have been, I prayed a prayer and from that day on it's just been an upward climb of victory after victory after victory and I'm just waiting for God to beam me up and take me into glory. I have found the Christian experience rather to be, I prayed this sincere prayer, and I thought my life was going to take a different direction, and things were going to change, and that moment seemed so real, then how do I still see this thing in me? 
I have found my Christian life to actually be seasons where I even go, am I even a Christian? Is this real? Do I really believe? Or is this whole thing fake? Am I faking my way through this whole thing? Because if I really know Jesus, why does my life look like that? I have found that the Christian climb upwards and onwards is a, a climb upwards and onwards with many slips and stumbles and falls and often regression on our way of progression. And maybe Jonah's a good picture of what it looks like to live this messy life of life and faith. And so maybe for the hundredth time this summer, I'm saying again, we are Jonah. Everything I see in this guy, everything I despise in this guy, I see in myself and even somewhat despise in myself because Jonah's messy. And if there's one thing I've learned from being a pastor, I'm young, I'm new to this gig and this game, but if there's one thing I've learned, it's that people are messy. People never do what you think they're going to do. They, they profess this one thing and so you expect them to live a certain way and yet their life doesn't match because people are messy. And just so you know, by people, I mean you, right? Because we've got this culture in church that when the preacher's saying something, he means the people next to me. People is you. You are people. I am people. We are messy. And everything I see in Jonah, I see in me. So what we're doing today is we're walking through chapter 4, and we're getting a closer look at Jonah. And what I want you to hear is that Jonah's story is not ultimately God forgave Jonah and Jonah obeyed, so you go and obey too. Jonah's story is rather a story of two hearts, a religious small heart and a huge encompassing God-sized heart. And, and what you find in the story is the contrast of two hearts. And it's almost scary how unlike God's heart, the believer's heart looks. Last week, if you were here, Sibi walked us through a great hatred. That word gadol that we've been using throughout the, the series. And we said that Jonah's problem is he sees God as belonging to us and not them. This week, we're looking at a great hypocrisy, a gadol hypocrisy, where Jonah says, God is for me, but not you. All right? So that's what we're walking through in Jonah 4. Let me pray, ask the Lord for his help in our time, and then we'll go into Jonah 4. Father, I thank you for these men and women, these brothers and sisters, dear to me, dear to you, that you have gathered and assembled another Sunday to sit under the weight and authority and power and glory of your word. Jesus, you promised in John 16 that it's good for you to go to heaven because if you go, you will send the helper. The Spirit would come, you promised, and he would convict us of sin and lead us to righteousness. That's what we're praying for today. Father, in ourselves, we will not see our sin. We'll minimize it. We'll blame it away. We'll make excuses. We'll not see it for its depth or ugliness or how close it is to us. We'll be numb to it. But the Holy Spirit is able to convict us of sin. And then the Spirit is able to lead us to righteousness and point us to Jesus. In John 16, you promised that the Spirit would come and He would point us to Jesus, make the things of Jesus available to us. Give to us a righteousness then today that doesn't come from ourselves, that we don't invent it, we don't find it in something else, that we become so hopeless that Jesus alone would be our righteousness. So do something that only the Holy Spirit can do in this time. 
grace our preaching with your spirit so that it is communicated and heard well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Jonah 4. When Jonah 3 ends, just as a refresher to you, as a reminder to you, the city of Nineveh has repented. So you've got 120,000 or more people and the whole city turns to God. So you're talking every apartment complex, every row home, every single family house, every politician, prostitute, junkie, jailer, they're all turning to God. The whole city turns to God. And if chapter 3 ends, the book of Jonah, I think it would end with God being exceedingly pleased and happy. Right When Jonah 3 ends, it says that God receives their repentance and he relents from the disaster he had promised to bring on them. That's 3 verse 10. Hear it again. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. So Jonah 3 ends with God being pleased with Nineveh's repentance, receiving it and relenting from doing the disaster he promised. So if I could end Jonah 3 as the end of this book, I think the last verse would have been, it pleased God exceedingly and he was happy. It pleased God exceedingly and he was happy. So then you get what a left turn you take in Jonah 4 verse 1 when it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. You literally could not find a more polar opposite direction, response, reaction to God than Jonah's heart. You literally cannot find a more opposite direction and response for God's heart than Jonah's heart. Because God is ready to, as it says in the Gospel of Luke, throw a party in the presence of the angels because people have repented. He's exceedingly pleased and happy, but Jonah is exceedingly displeased and angry. And guess what word is used in 4 verse 1 to describe Jonah's reaction? That word, gadol. A gadol reaction. Because this is what it would literally sound. If we translated it from the Hebrew, it would say, it was evil to Jonah. A gadol evil. A great evil. And it burned to him. It was a great, remember that word gadol. Gadol-sized city, Nineveh. Gadol-sized fish. Gadol-sized storm. And in Jonah's eyes, this evil is this gadol-sized evil. And the word evil is used in Jonah just a few times. It's used in chapter 1 when God says of Nineveh, their evil has come up to me. It's used again in chapter 3 when God sees them turn from their evil and he relents. And so think of what's being said here. Jonah is using the word that God used to describe Nineveh to now describe God. Jonah is saying, God has done an evil thing. Not just an evil thing, a gadol evil, a, a Nineveh-sized evil is what God has done. In 4 verse 1, he is ascribing to God evil. He's calling God a sinner. That's what a religious heart does. A religious heart is so safely tucked away within your system, your tribe, your way of doing things, your way of seeing church, you dot your I's, you cross your T's, that even God becomes an offense to you. Think of that. 
Jonah is offended by God. Jonah is so religious that the God of his religion is now an offense to him. If you want to see that that's the way religion works, just fast forward the story. What happens some eight centuries later when God comes now in the flesh through the person of Jesus and Jonah's descendants, the Pharisees, what do they do? Jesus is an offense to them. He doesn't fit in their system. He doesn't fit in their boundaries. He doesn't fit in their way of doing things. And so they are offended by Jesus. People are coming to know God. People are coming to salvation. None of that matters because he doesn't cross their T's and dot their I's. And so they describe Jesus as evil, a sinner. He's a friend of the sinners, eats with the gluttons, drinks with the drunkards, parties with the prostitutes. He's a sinner. He's evil. The religious heart finds its system so right, its way of doing things, that it it cannot stomach God's grace exceeding its bounds, doing things in a way you don't imagine, so that even if people are coming to know the Lord, you are angry, angry enough to die. Jonah is angry, and he's accusing God of a great evil like the Pharisees would one day accuse Jesus, because God has now become offensive to him. And, and, and the verse literally reads, it was a great evil and it burned to him. Right? He's burning with anger. This is not no petty temper tantrum. This is not no pouty kid in the corner. This is a hot, settled anger towards God. Jonah is angry that Nineveh repents. Jonah is angry that God relents. And if there's one thing going for Jonah, it's that at least this time he doesn't run. He goes to God with his complaint. And so he prays, verse 2. It's not a great prayer, but he prays. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's interesting, I hadn't noticed it till now, but, but it seems like Jonah has had this conversation with God while he was still in his own country, right? That's what he says. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? So way back in chapter 1, while he's still in Israel, he voices this complaint and concern to God. You sort of picture Jonah packing his bag saying, Nineveh, why would I go to Nineveh? I'm going to go there. I'm going to talk about how they'll be overthrown in 40 days. That kind of a second chance is going to move them to repentance, and you're just going to forgive them. They're going to be alive and well before I get there. They're going to be alive and well after I get there. So why on earth would I take that trip? Why am I going to go if everything's going to be the same before and after? Because you're just going to give in. You're that kind of God. You're going to be a softy to them. I know it. You know, one of the things we've been saying over these weeks is we keep noticing Jonah's the only guy in the story who never says sorry, who never repents. And only in chapter 4 do you finally realize why. It's because Jonah's not sorry. He's completely self-justified. Even in this moment, he's saying, I knew it. I was right all along. You acted just like I said you were going to act. That's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. There's no sorry from Jonah's lips because there's no repentance in Jonah's heart. Even now, a whale has swallowed him and Jonah still doesn't see himself in the wrong. It's like Jonah is saying to God, God, if this thing were to happen again, 
I would do the same exact thing, only I'd run farther and faster than before. Jonah is angry. Jonah now not only can't stand Nineveh, now he can't stand God. Because God is an offense to him. And here's his case against God. Listen to it. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. That's Jonah's case against God. I knew it. I knew it. You are merciful. You're gracious. You're steadfast in love. You relent from disaster. That's why I hate you. Right? If you were here last week, I loved how Sibby explained Jonah's got a pros column and a cons column for God. And the irony is the same words go in both columns. In chapter 2, I love you because you're merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And chapter 4, I hate you because you're merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do you see the irony? As Jonah was making this rant against God, every Jew would have known exactly what he was talking about. Because this description of God is perhaps the most widely used description in the whole of the Old Testament Scripture. This character, this nature, these adjectives about God is what's used everywhere throughout the Scriptures. In fact, the first time this description is used of God, it's not man saying this about God, it's God proclaiming this about Himself. If you heard the passage Shainu read for us, the first time these words are used of God is in Exodus 34. I'll give you the background so you, so you get the irony in the context. The context is God has chosen the people of Israel, walked them through the Red Sea, brought them to the wilderness. They haven't lifted a spear, a sword, a bow. They haven't done anything. And yet God has rescued them from the most powerful nation on earth. And how do they thank God for all his grace? They grab their earrings and their necklaces. They fashion their gold into a baby calf. And they bow down to this thing and they say, you brought us out of Egypt. They go into idolatry. And so now God is angry. He's about to bring disaster. He's about to overthrow this nation, much like, surprise, surprise, Nineveh. They, they too have gone into idolatry. God's anger is ready to overthrow them as well. And then Moses climbs a hill and he speaks with God, just like Jonah climbs a hill, overlooking this sinful people that deserve to be destroyed. And then God in his anger says to Moses, I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them out. I'll start all over with you, but I'm going to wash them away. Moses pleads for them, intercedes for them. Moses intercedes that this undeserving people would receive mercy, much unlike Jonah. And then God in Exodus 34 does the unthinkable. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you again. And then he passes by Moses, and when he passes by, guess what God says? He says, let me proclaim my name. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The first time the people of Israel ever hear these words, it's in the context of God overlooking a sinful, idolatrous people that deserve his disaster and judgment, and yet God spares them. And yet now Jonah has the audacity 
to overlook a city of sinful people that deserve judgment and disaster and say the same words, except now it's an accusation. I hate you because you're that way. Do you see that? Do you see Jonah? I mean, Jonah and his people Israel hang on the very mercy that now Jonah despises. They owe their existence to the very mercy that now he hates. They exist solely because God is a merciful God, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I mean, just consider the story of Israel. You heard it as we read Psalm 136, even in our call to worship. What's the repeated refrain over and over again? For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Where did they get that from? From Exodus 34. Do you know that this description that Jonah now hates, this became the refrain of Israel over and over again. It was the subject of their praise to God. Throughout the Psalms, Psalm 86, 103, 111, 145, we could keep going. Over and over again, David says, God, you're merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It wasn't just even what they praised God for, it was what gave them confidence to pray to God. So in Nehemiah and Joel, when the people have sinned against God, it's this phrase that they use when they say, let's return to God because don't forget, He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Israel's whole story is that kind of a gracious God. Let me walk you very quickly through Israel's story. God chooses a man named Abraham. When does He choose him? Not when Abraham was believing God, worshiping God. Abraham was an idol worshiper in his father's country. Not because of anything Abraham done. God in his grace said, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. So he takes this idol worshiper and he forms the founding father of his covenant community. And then he promises that this man will have a nation and this man does. And this nation is now in bondage in Egypt. And when does God save Israel? The scriptures tell us they were in idolatry just like their counterparts in Egypt. So it's not that they were just crying out to Yahweh. They had the same idols Egypt did. And yet God saves them because God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He brings them to the Red Sea and, and they've now seen ten plagues light up Egypt. They've seen God flex His arm. They've seen His power. And so at the Red Sea, they cry out saying, The Lord will save us. No. They say to Moses, why did you bring us here to die now? And God parts the sea. He leads them through the wilderness, and now they say, we've been through the Red Sea, so surely God will provide bread and food and water. No, they grumble and they murmur and they complain. And God, instead of wiping them out, He provides. And then they have the season of the kings, which you heard in Psalm 136. And king after king sins, and God relents. Then they're taken into exile into a foreign country and God redeems and rescues and delivers and brings them back. And if you finish the Old Testament, the only thing you can be left saying is, God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But what about Jonah's own story? That's the narrative of his people. What about his narrative? Are you going to find anyone whose story is dripping and drenched with grace more than Jonah's? Think of Jonah's story. In 2 Kings, he's the prophet who gets to tell Israel during the time of King Jeroboam, when they're in idolatry, your borders are going to be expanded. 
So he's seen firsthand, his mouth has proclaimed a message of God's mercy to an undeserving people. And then think about the mercy in his own life. Jonah 1, he runs from God. And instead of letting him go, God pursues. Jonah 2, he's drowning in the sea. Remember him saying, seaweed has covered my head. I'm at the base of the mountains. I'm dying. My life is ebbing away. My soul is fainting. Yet I remember the Lord and God saves him. He's alive because of God being merciful and gracious. Jonah 3, it starts with what? And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And we talk through that. It's not like God just says, I'm not going to kill you, but your life as a prophet is on the shelf. You're done. But rather he chooses to use this guy a second time. The word of the Lord came to him. And then in chapter 4, you see God's grace still. In the verses we'll look at next week, do you know that Jonah almost glibly, twice says, God, just put me to death. God causes a vine to spring up. And when that vine goes away, Jonah is so angry that his creature comfort is gone, that God's taken that away, that he's ready to die again. And God, instead of hearing his prayer, is gracious. Aren't you glad that sometimes God doesn't answer the stupid things that you ask for, but is wise enough to say no to the things that you think you need? And God preserves his life. He doesn't say, fine, I've had it with you anyway. We'll take care of this in heaven. He says, no, I'm, I'm still going to work on you because there's more I want to do in you. Jonah's life hangs on God being merciful and gracious, and yet he despises that same mercy. So as we wrap up, here's the, the question I want us to ask. How could that be? How can a man who prays the sincere prayer that he prays in chapter 2 act like he acts in chapter 4? How do you reconcile that? How can a man who's had so much grace drip over his life, drench his life, not have a heart that is ready to see that grace spill out to others around him? How can a man whose narrative has so much undeserved mercy and grace, who's alive because God is gracious, who hasn't been struck down because God is merciful, how can that guy not have a heart that's ready to see mercy spill out everywhere onto everyone? And as you're sort of bewildered by that and you go, how does a man like Jonah exist? I think it becomes closer to home and you get the sobering realization that we should ask that same thing. I should ask that same thing. My narrative, my story, my life is drenched with grace. Drenched. God should have struck me down for my hypocrisies, my contradictions a long, long time ago. And instead, He's kept me alive. He's healed me. He's redeemed my life. He's healed my marriage. He's forgiven my sins. He's forgiven my backslidings. He's pardoned my contradictions. He's forgiven me. He's given me hope in Jesus. I have eternal life with the Lord waiting. How is my heart not like God's, ready to see grace spill out into the lives of others? How does my heart not get it? So I want to propose to you two answers and then we'll stop. Because I think all along we've been diagnosing the symptoms, now we've got to diagnose the problem, right? If you go to the doctor, if you go to Winson or Saroon or John, they look at you, they check the symptoms, but, but then they've got to diagnose what's behind this. So here's what I think is behind Jonah's heart. 
It's because Jonah doesn't see the depth of his sin or the depth of God's grace. Jonah's still more religious than he is gospel. And because of that, he doesn't see the depth of his sin and he doesn't see the depth of God's grace. Jonah has all the marks of a really religious dude who doesn't fully have the gospel growing deep in his heart. Because he doesn't still get the depth of his sin and because of that, get the depth of God's grace. Remember the very first week I gave you that illustration of the pastor who said he puts coins into a Coke machine and, and no Coke. And then he learned he's got to slam the side of the machine till he hears the coins drop and then out comes the Coke. And we said it's sort of that same way with the gospel. The gospel has found its way into here, so you know it. And yet every day and every week what we're doing is sort of going like this till that thing drops and we believe it deeper and we believe it more and it begins to produce the fruit that we would expect. Because Jonah has it here, but it hasn't fully dropped. Because Jonah doesn't see the depth of his sin. Let me explain that to you. Jonah's got two categories. There's sinners and then there's sinners. There's sinners like me and Israel. They're sinners. And then there's the sinners like Nineveh. And, and wouldn't you know, you find that same category in the lives of his descendants, the Pharisees. We're all sinners, sure. We have the Day of Atonement. We, we've got our sacrifices. But then there's the sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and, and the drunkards and the gluttons and the rest. And Jonah's heart is so clouded by his self-righteousness, so clouded by his pedigree. He's a Jew. He's from Israel. He's a Hebrew. This is my country. You hear those things over and over again in the book. And so you, you might have your own blanks. This is my tribe. This is my family upbringing. This is my denomination. This is the way we do it. And so you've got your own pedigree that you're banking on. Jonah's got all these things going that he doesn't see the depth of his sin. Right? J Jonah doesn't see the depth of his sin. There's his sin and then there's Nineveh's sin. And because he doesn't get the depth, there's no fire, there's no usefulness for mission. Let me explain that. If you've been a Christian for some time, who do you see in your mind as the ones that are really on fire for the Lord? The ones who really are about mission, the ones who, who talk to every guy about Jesus, you can't get them to stop. Who's the guy that's really on fire? It's one of two people. It's usually the brand new Christian. So you see him and you go, oh man, I remember what that was like and I wish I had that fire. That's how we describe it. Or it's the guy with that really sexy testimony. The one that's been in drugs for a long time, was in all kinds of wicked sin and when he came to God, he stays on fire because you go, of course he's going to stay on fire. Do you know all the junk that God saved him from? What else would you expect? Is he ever going to forget who he was when God saved him? And so we think it's only the guys with the really sensational, spectacular sins and stories that stay on fire for the Lord. But do you know if you look at church history and just the servants of God, the ones who maintain passion, the ones who are useful for mission, are not the ones with the most sensational story. They're the, just the ones who have a deep awareness of sin. The gospel's fresh. It's new because their sin is fresh and new. When you talk about Jesus dying for sin, it doesn't get old and crusty and stale. 
It's not sort of this glazed look like, tell me something besides the gospel. I heard that when I came in the doors. It's as new as it just happened today because their sin, their understanding of their sin is deep and fresh and new. It's not that they have the most sensational stories. It's just that they have a deep awareness of their sinfulness, their unworthiness. When I got here two years ago, when I first came to Philly, I got to preach at a church in South Philadelphia. Small congregation. The pastor there was a a man in his 70s or 80s. Old man. He's been at that church for 40 years, so he's already buried a generation. He's now the older man, younger men in his church. His hands shake when he holds communion because he's he's that old. He can't hold the bread and the the cup still. He he sort of trembles as as he walks to the pulpit. He gets up there, he introduces me, I get to preach that day. He's sitting behind me, the the, the ministers sit in the front. I can't finish my sermon because he keeps shouting hallelujah after every word that I'm saying. Like I'm stumbling to get through it because this guy keeps interrupting me with amens. And I'm telling you, it was as if he was hearing the gospel for the very first time. I was talking and it was... It was as if this was brand new to him and he had never heard it before. That there was an answer to his sin problem. That Jesus Christ came and died because he was so wicked and now he was forgiven and cleansed. His awareness of his sin was so great that when the gospel went forth, it was not stale or crusty or old. Forty years of ministry... Week after week. And I can guarantee you in the 70-year-old's life, there is nothing spectacular, sensational in his story. It's just week after week of ministry, and yet the gospel is alive and fresh and new. Because he gets the depth of his sin, and so he gets the depth of God's grace. It's not, God saved me, of course, that was sort of expected, and then God saved the Ninevites. God saved a sinner like me. And that's no different than God saving the Ninevites. Jonah fails to see that Nineveh and he are two peas in the same pod. And that it is as miraculous for God to save a religious, self-righteous, small-minded, racist, narrow, bigot, religious prophet as it is to save a wicked, great city like Nineveh. It is as spectacular that God would save a filthy city like Philadelphia, that he would save a judgmental, small-minded, narrow, racist, exclusivist, self-righteous people like you and me. Because the depth of God's grace and the depth of his sin was missing. And once Jonah gets that, everything would be different. There's one place that I know of on earth where the depth of sin and the depth of grace meet. There's one place that I know where the depth of our sin and the depth of God's grace collide, and that's at the cross. So if your heart has grown stale over your sin, or if it's grown stale over God's grace, today, go back to the cross. Go back to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And ask the Spirit to bring you there afresh, Because you'll be numb, 
to your sin. You'll minimize your sin. You'll excuse away your sin. You won't see it for its depths and disgustingness and depravity. So ask the Spirit. That's what Jesus promised in John 16, that the Spirit would come, convict us of sin, and convict us of righteousness. So come back to the cross, because it's here where our sin and God's grace collide. Because when you see Jesus hanging on the cross, and you see that God did not relent from having disaster fall on Him, you begin to see the depth of your sin. God was not, on the cross, merciful to Jesus. God was not slow to anger. God was not steadfast in abounding love. God did not relent from disaster on Jesus. Rather, He poured all of that out on Him so that He might be gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster on you. He poured out the floodgates of His wrath on Jesus so that He might pour out the floodgates of His mercy on you. That's the depth of sin. That's the depth of God's grace. That's what we need to come afresh to today. So we've got about three weeks left as we close out Jonah 4. And I think the closing question we're going to ask is, so how does this all shake out? What happens to our boy Jonah? Will he ever change? And we'll answer that in the coming weeks because I think for today the question is, will you? Will you change? Let's pray.